we're there. Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of John, chapter 6. I actually want to call your attention today um, to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, we're actually going to, uh, to kind of walk around the whole chapter. We're going to try to go over the whole thing to a certain, not a lot of depth. It's a very familiar chapter. I'm not going to try to give you any, any different, any super uh, deep uh, profundity on it. It's a very familiar uh, miracle, very familiar chapter to all of us. But it is a very important, in the scheme of the book of John, very important chapter, very important miracle, the 5,000. Because this is the only miracle that is recorded in all of the four Gospels. And John normally doesn't do that. He'll eventually touch upon a miracle that is uh, uh, reported by somebody else, by one of the other evangelists. But this is the only one that is uh, all throughout the Gospels. Um, in, in four Gospels, it, it is registered. So um, there is a certain importance that we are going to uh, take a look at. Um, let, me, let me pray and then we'll read and we'll get right to it, okay? Father God, it is from you that your people need to hear. From the Bible and not from me. From your Holy Spirit and not from me. I pray, Father God, that I would disappear in the midst of the riches of your wisdom revealed to us in your word in this chapter of Scripture. I pray that you would open their hearts, minds, and ears to hear what the Spirit has said. I pray that you protect the hearers from my errors and that you would cause them to repent of their sin, to turn to you who you are, Lord God, the soul-satisfying bread from heaven. You are the only one who can satisfy all of our longings, eternal longings. And it is to you that we turn for the eternal satisfaction of our soul and for our worship this morning. Please accept our worship and guide our worship and cause us to be humble and look to you for the eternal satisfaction of our souls. I pray that for the glory of your Son. Amen. Like I said, this is a miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. This is uh, something that happened right after John the Baptist had died. And one of the other Gospels will tell us that Jesus told them to go away to a desert place so that they could be alone and rest, which all ministers do need, rest and relax. So this is what chapter 6 of the book of John says. Let's start with verse 1 all the way through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, was, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread? so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, 
And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And they had eaten, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, first of all, if they ever come up with that time machine, this is where I want to go. To, uh, not necessarily to the whole ministry of Jesus, but to these times where Jesus withdrew with his disciples again. Just alone with his disciples. I can only imagine how precious those moments are. I actually have had a few of those moments when you sense the overwhelming presence of God as you're reading the Word of God, as you are listening to the preached Word of God, and God just shows up in a, in a special manner and touches your heart. Those were special moments when He went away with His disciples. And that's exactly what He's doing here. This story, like I said, is recorded in all of the other uh, three Gospels. And um, I am going to make reference to the other Gospels just to give us a little bit of the background, the background of what is happening. Just to give us a little bit more information. Uh, and one of them is that they were going um, to be alone, to rest, to, to get some refreshment so that they could minister better. This is something that every minister needs. To have time for people, like we see that Jesus did, but it's just exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting because you're just a human being and you need to devote yourself to prayer, to interceding for your people, to ministering to your people, to studying the Word, to teach your people, to having time to counsel your people, to spend time in fellowship with your people. And you are just a beggar, just like your people. You need Jesus just as much as everybody else. There are no superman ministers. And Jesus recognizes that. And he tells his disciples, tells the apostles, let's go alone and let's have some time of refreshment. Let's get some rest alone so that we get fed again and we come back. Jesus himself was tired. We know from the other gospel that Jesus was tired and he slapped at the back of a boat. So Jesus needed a time of rest as well. And no doubt they were all sad because in the Gospel of Mark, just prior to this, uh, to the record of this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we are told that John the Baptist had just been beheaded. Now, the disciples, they went and they, they got his body and they buried him. They laid him in a tomb. Now, they were no doubt sad by the loss of this precious saint, this precious preacher of God, prophet of God, that they waited for so long. There was a time of silence from God between the Old and the New Testament of 400 years. And then John the Baptist comes in the wilderness preaching repentance. And even Jesus gives testimony, gives witness about John the Baptist in the prior chapter, in chapter 5 of the book of John, he talks about how precious John the Baptist was. So they are no doubt grieving the loss of this precious saint. And then we start reading uh, um, chapter 6 of the book of John, and he starts saying, after this, now this might give us the impression that between chapter 5 and chapter 6 there was no time. Okay, Jesus just healed the layman, the lame, the invalid on the Sabbath in chapter 5. Now he finishes, he gets rejected, the chapter ends, and now after this, immediately the feeding of the 5,000. That's actually not what happens. Uh, there is 
at least six months to maybe a whole year that went uh, in between chapter 5 and 6. And um, this is where I get this. The whole setting for chapter 5, if you can flip a page uh, back, just rewind a little bit with me. Uh, on chapter 5, verse 1, that's the whole setting for what happened in chapter 5, the healing of the layman in, um, on the Sabbath. And that's how John starts it. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, whichever is your, um, your preference on the Feast of the Jews, it seems a lot of commentators agree that it's Pentecost, but let's say whether it's the Tabernacles or Passover, it's either 11 months if it's Pentecost, 11 months had passed, it's either 6 months if it, if it is uh, Tabernacles, and a whole year if it's uh, Passover, because verse uh, 3 of chapter 6 will tell us that the Passover was at hand. Right now, verse 4, chapter 6. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. So if in chapter 1 it's Passover, in chapter 5 it's Passover, a whole year had gone by. And John has told us that he does this. John, in the end of his book, he says, the Lord Jesus has done many other things that are not recorded in this book. I'm just recording this so that you may believe that he is the Son of God. And by believing in him you may have eternal life. So John doesn't really have any regard for chronological uh, record of what's happening. He leaves things behind. He left a lot of things for the other evangelists. That's how the Holy Spirit chose to do the book of John, to write the book of John. So we are told that uh, uh, after this, six months to a year, keep that in mind, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as Sea of Tiberias. Now, after this, he see, he's there, remember, he's there trying to get alone, trying to get some rest, trying to get some refreshment, to grieve the loss of his cousin, the dear prophet of God. He's with his disciples, he wants to have a special time of fellowship, and he, lift up, he lifts up his eyes. And what does he see? A large crowd was following him, verse 2. And they all come. As he's trying to be alone, he's trying to recharge they all come. And it's not a few, a, a few guys, not just some small group, but it's a large crowd. And they're coming because they are forsaking their sins. They want to be baptized. They all want to follow Jesus. They want to acknowledge Him as the Messiah. They're experiencing revival. Is that why they're coming? No. It's not because they're forsaking their sin and there's a, a citywide revival. It's because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And um, towards the end of, of the account of this miracle, we are told that they wanted to proclaim him. When he gave bread to everybody, they wanted to make him king by force. I mean, they knew that Jesus didn't want to be the king in the way that they wanted him to be. They didn't even care. They wanted him to be the king and they wanted to take him by force. They were absolutely the type of people... It, that. They're thrill seekers. They want to see the show. And, I mean, it's like going to a, to a Chris Angel show in Las Vegas. Does anybody know Chris Angel? No. If you don't, okay, no, yeah. Don't, yeah. <laughs> don't. But it's like seeing a magician. It's like seeing a magician. The only difference is that when you see a magician, you actually have to pay for the ticket. This magician, you come to see him and he feeds you. I mean, who doesn't want that guy? Let's make him king. He feeds us. He heals the sick and he feeds us? And there's a magic show? We want that guy. You know, he is going to be king. There's this other guy that he wants to raise our taxes and keep the oppression? We don't like him. This guy we like. He feeds us. Isn't that true? Politicians throughout history have picked up on this preference from the people, from the voters. And they have made all kinds of promises. So these people want to make Jesus king because, I mean, it's obvious. Isn't that amazing how people want to just serve or quote-unquote serve whoever is more useful to them with no regard for truth or who they are? Let's be honest. Does that happen in our age? I mean, what really strikes me in this account is that these people, they were following Jesus, right? They, the great crowd, 
They're following Jesus. And many of them are lost. In the end of the chapter, verse 66, we are told that many of them have left. They did not walk with Jesus anymore. Let's see. Verse 66. After this, this meaning what Jesus is going to preach after the, uh, um, the feeding. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, many means many. You know why? Because we are told that there were 5,000 men. The book of Matthew, Matthew will say 5,000 men besides the women and children. Now, a lot, of, a lot of these men, they were married. I'm not going to say that all 5,000 of them were married, but a lot of them were married. If it's a feast of the Jews, they go with their family. You know, it's Passover, the whole family goes. And they had a lot of kids. Those Jews had kids. They didn't abide by the whole, you know, 1.2 kids that Planned Parenthood will tell you. I always wonder what 1.2 means. Um, but they had tons of kids. So it's safe to say that Jesus fed on that day upwards to 15 to 20,000 people. That's a lot of people. Now, for John to say many left and did not walk with them, well, if you have 20,000 people and 100 people leave, it doesn't look like many. There's a whole crowd, crowd there. But when you look at 20,000 people and you say many have left, I don't know. To me, in the end of the chapter, it sounds like only the 12 were left. Because Jesus will turn to them and say, to the 12, we are told, are you offended too? Are you going anywhere? And Peter gives a great answer. A great answer that I want us to give whenever we are tested. Lord, where else will we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. So many have left Jesus because of what he preaches. They didn't want the Jesus that had any demands. They want the Jesus who fed them, who served them, who was the magician, who was popular. But none of that talk of repentance. They were lost. That repentance talk, nah, not very popular. We want the food. We want Rome overthrown. And this is amazing to me that in verse 14, they will say, wow, this is the guy whom Moses have prophesied about. This is him. They knew the scripture. They knew what Moses had said. They understood Deuteronomy 18.15 when Moses says, there will be a prophet like me. They understood. They expected that. And when he came, they, didn't ex they accepted he was the, the, the prophet, but they wanted to mold him. And isn't that what many of us do with Jesus when we proclaim we love and follow him, but we want to put him inside a box and have him agree with us and fight and resist against what the word is clearly telling us, whatever your fight of faith is. These people, it was so bad that they were actually lost. They did not walk with him. They knew the commands of God, but in the end they laughed. They knew the command, they recognized the command, but they laughed. Without obedience, the command means nothing. It means nothing. We will see that the disciples, they didn't really have a lot of faith. They didn't know how this was going to go down, but still when Jesus said, have the people sit down, they did. They obeyed even though they, they weren't sure how this was going to happen, because it was only a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. There was a lot of people there. We know, I, I, I don't want that to be you, knowing the command of God, knowing the Scripture. I don't care how much Scripture you know, without obedience and faith. It means nothing. You are lost. I'm not trying to be harsh. It is the truth. We know better than this. I mean, not long ago, between the last time I was here and now, I was able to actually um, accomplish to further my, my education a little bit more. I got one more diploma. And I praise God for it. You know, traffic school will be, 
one that I will cherish. I learned a lot of new things. Just so you know, they have strict rules about making a right turn with, without a complete stop. Um, they're legalists. They, they really are. I had to go before a judge. I had to appear in court. And you know what I said when I got there? When he asked me about the law, I said, Judge, Your Honor, I know the law. I love the law. I understand it. I can quote it in Greek. Is that what anybody would say? The idea is, why didn't you obey? I don't care if you can quote it in Greek. I don't care if you have it memorized. The idea is to know the Scripture so that you can love it and obey and worship God through your faith and delight and pursuit of satisfaction and the only one that can satisfy all of your longings. The idea is not just knowledge. If knowledge is not for worship, we have missed, we have missed it completely and entirely to know the Scripture and not allowing that knowledge to explode in worship is of no value. Apparently these people knew the Scripture and in the end, they were lost. They walked away and they did not walk with Jesus anymore. So Jesus knows very well what He's going to do. And... He looks at Philip and he goes, he sees the crowd coming, it's a lot of people, so what do we do? Where can we buy some bread? Now, let's, put, let's pick up with verse, uh, verse 4, right? Uh, now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, it's a great question, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. So not only we were all alone, everything was nice, we're trying to get away from these people because we're trying to refresh and recharge. They're coming. Instead of sending them away, which is what the disciples suggest to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark uh, and Luke, exactly what they suggest. Send them away so they can go buy food. Jesus had no plan. They had no plan whatsoever of sending them away. And Jesus, I see a little bit of a sense of humor here, although it's not a joke, he's not playing with, with Philip, but I see a little bit of a sense of humor here. Jesus looking at the crowd and saying, what do we do? How do we feed them? Oh, you're going to feed them now too? Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on those people. And he asked Philip. Now, Philip was from that area. This is happening in Bethsaida, and Philip is from there. Verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 44 says that Philip was from Bethsaida. But that was also the city of uh, Peter and, and Andrew, his brother. So on the surface, it might look like Jesus is asking a local, where is the nearest McDonald's? You know, where can these people go buy food? He's asking a local guy, because, you know, maybe he's not from that area. You, you know this area better than I do. Where do we buy food? But we are told in verse 6 that this is not all that he's doing. We are told that Jesus had no plan of sending these people away, and he knew very, very well what he was going to do. He was going to feed all these people. So let's take a look at verse six. What is it that they want to do? That Jesus wants to do? So he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew very well what he was going to do, but he wanted to test Philip. Did Jesus know if Philip had faith? Of course, of course he did. Jesus knew the heart of man. He knew what was in, 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 in man's heart. He didn't need to prove anything to him. Jesus didn't need to, to, to kill any doubt that he had about Philip. He knew who Philip was. But he did that for the enhancement of Philip's faith. To increase his faith. To reveal to him his character. This question that Jesus is asking is a very similar question to what Moses asked in Deuteronomy 11. When Moses looks at all these people in the wilderness and he looks at God and, and there's, there's nothing around it. They're in the desert. And he doesn't look at God. He asks God, 
Where am I to buy meat for all of these people? And what did God do? Didn't God provide for the people of Israel in the wilderness? So he asked this question to Philip to see if Philip will remember the scripture and trust in God's provision. Philip was present four chapters ago. In chapter 2, when, when Jesus creates wine in front of him, about 100 gallons of wine. No, there was water. Okay, put water, fill, fill everything with water. And now the water is wine. He knew that Jesus had the power to do this. He could have said, I don't know. That would be a great answer. Where can we buy food for all of these people? Lord, I don't know, but I know that you have a plan. Why am I saying that? Because you are going to find yourself in a test. Because God tests those whom He loves. God tests His children. Didn't He do that with Abraham? Sacrifice your boy? Wasn't that a test of faith? He didn't end up killing his boy. But in that day, he revealed to Abraham that he was Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Do you think Abraham's faith after that was strengthened? After he saw the provision of God? He's doing the same to Philip, and he is doing the same with you. You're going to find yourself in a situation where you're going to look at 20,000 people and you're supposed to feed them and you don't know what to do. A whole year of your salary won't be enough to buy food for all these people. And Jesus is going to ask you, how are we going to feed these people? And you won't have an answer. I pray to God that the answer, not only of your lips, but of your heart is, Lord, I don't know. But I trust that you have a plan. If you want me to, I can ask these people to sit down and I will trust in your provision. An even better answer is to say, Lord, you have the power. I remember when you fed all those people, manna from heaven. I remember when you turned water into wine. I'm expecting you to act in a supernatural way. To move in that manner. Wouldn't that be great? Now, God will test you always in the deep end of the pool. Let's say you're six feet tall and you're walking around in, in the 5.5 the, the point of the pool and you're trusting God. Because your nose is out of the water. But God will test you over there, the deep end, where your feet won't touch the floor. Or if they do, your nose won't be out of the water. And you might say, no, 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 hold on. That's too deep for me. And God's going to say, yeah, that's where I want you to go. I'll be there. And now you're faced with a dilemma. Do I trust God in the deep end of the pool or do I stay here and in a situation where I don't have to reach for my faith? Now, when God is asking you to reach for your faith, what it means is that your faith is growing. Now, if God only, quote-unquote, tests you in the, let's say you're six feet tall, in the 5.5 the, the point of the pool, you'd be another Jesus. You're like, I never question God. Look at me, I'm super spiritual. I'm always here, my nose is out of the water, I trust God all the time. And you wouldn't grow in your faith. There's a song in a, in a different language that I'm going to butcher trying to translate it, but it says that every time that your faith is tested, God gives you the chance to grow a little bit more. The mountains and valleys, deserts 
and the seas that you have to go through, they all lead you closer to Him. Your tasks are not greater than your God. And they will not keep you from walking with Him. I assure you, that is the heart of God when He tests your faith. It's not so that you're blown out of your mind in a negative way and you forsake Him. It is so that you may grow and be transformed into the, in the image of His Son. Because it is in those moments that you realize that Jesus is all you've got. When your six-year-old is diagnosed with cancer and she has to go through chemo, having a mega church means very little. Having all of the money in the world means very little. Being famous means very, very little. Being successful, having a career, being fill-in-the-blank means very little because Jesus is all you have. Let's take a look at what James, at what James says about tests, what they produce, and what is the intent of God in testing. Maybe I want you to go there with me. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I want you to look on the pages of your own book or phone. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, what does it produce, guys? steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing here's the heart of God opened up for you in the testing of your faith this is why God tests you it produces patience and steadfastness and growth and in the end you will be lacking in nothing The testing of your faith is brought by a loving God. Not meant to shrink your faith, but to increase it. Rejoice in the trials that He brings upon you. Doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. Doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult. But whatever happens, He is the bread of life. He is the one that can satisfy all of your longings. Eternal longings. He's the one that he's called the God of all comfort. This week I went through a little bit of a trial when my son, my four-year-old, had a, a surgery on Monday. It wasn't anything crazy. It was just uh, tonsils. But on Sunday, the surgery was Monday morning. On Sunday night, I was starting to entertain, just to be honest, to entertain the sin of anxiety. I really was. I was fine until then. And on Sunday night, as the the hour approached, I I really started to entertain it. And I am friends, I have dear friends and family that are in the the quote-unquote think positive camp. And I was told, you know, everything's going to go right, you know. And my thing is always, how do you know? I don't know if everything's going to go right. I trust God. In the end, I don't really know. And I was told many times, you know, no, it's already, it's already done. Everything's going to go fine. You don't have to worry. Eh. Wor- I-, I can handle the you don't have to worry because God is sovereign. But everything's going to go fine. I don't know. What I do know, and I actually was able to have a small conversation with someone about this. Even if everything does not go fine, God is great. God is good enough to get me through. His grace is sufficient to me. 
Even if it goes wrong, or whatever it is, God is good enough. That I know. God is good, and He loves me, and He will see to it that I get through this. Even when things don't go right, you can still trust Him. You can still obey Him if your faith is wavering. And I want to be careful on how I say this. Because I don't want to encourage just mindless, legalistic obedience. But there is something to say. When your faith is kind of shaky, you say, you know what, I'm still going to obey. Because it is in obedience that your faith will flourish. Let me tell you, I am absolutely 100% sure that it's not in disobedience that your faith, faith will grow. In fact, you stay in disobedience long enough when you realize it. You're just gone. You're just gone and you're going to look for repentance and there will be no repentance for you even though you seek it with tears. I have verses on this. It is in obedience that your faith will flourish. Like these guys, for example... They didn't know how they were going to feed them. Jesus said, have the men sit down. That does not imply that the women stood, okay? That's just how he talked. Everybody sat down, and the book of Mark will tell us that they sat down in groups of 50 and 100, okay? So that's what I do for a living. I serve people food. That's what I do. So I'm just imagining, I'm looking at this, and I mean, one, it's awesome. It's like a picnic because it tells us, verse 3 tells us that there was uh, uh, grass there, right, or... Yeah, there was a lot of grass there, and I mean, it's like a picnic, right? And um, I can see groups of 50, groups of 100, and I can see the aisles in the middle. Now, can you imagine only 12 guys serving 20,000 people? I mean, you think that the line for hospitality table is, is long sometimes. You really got to chill. Because this is 12 people feeding 20. It's a lot of people. But Jesus was serving, he was determined to serve dinner. These guys didn't know how. They said, you know, uh, even a whole year's salary, 200 denarii, wouldn't feed all these people. But they went ahead and they obeyed what Jesus told them to do. And I pray that that's your attitude. When you don't know what's going to happen, your faith is being tried, your faith is being tested, I pray that you reach for your faith. And you still act, you still feel you still move in obedience. There's one thing that, you know, uh, um, acts or behavior creates feelings, and feelings create behavior. There's not a set formula. But in obedience, actually start obeying and looking at Jesus and seeing the wisdom and commands. It does stir up feelings of faith in you, of delight. Be always careful when your faith is shrinking, your faith is weak. Do not default or fall back to disobedience. Because if you think your faith, your faith is getting weak in, in obedience, try disobedience. Very dangerous, very slippery ground. So Jesus feeds all of these people, and he doesn't feed them just a little piece of fish, just a little piece of bread. And this bread is the bread of the poor, you know, just like a little 50-cent pancake. It's not like a whole loaf you put under your arm. It's just this bread that this kid has, you know. Uh, it's just five pieces of bread, a couple of fish, and the fish is like a spread. It's not, you know, huge salmon or anything. It's just, just like... Small fish. In verse verse uh, thirteen, it's not even um, not even mentioned. It just talks about the bread being multiplied. And with that, he feeds everybody, twenty thousand people, being fed with the little boy's lunchables. Now, when Andrew came, he he brings it, and I don't think I have seen this. You know, he said to have a lot of faith. I don't think he had a lot of faith because he'll say, "There's this guy here, this little kid." That he has, you know, a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread, but um, what is it for so many? So even he is like, I don't know what to do. Maybe what he's saying was, you know, um, this guy brought lunch, but I don't think everybody did. What can we do, you know? Uh, there's a couple of guys that brought lunch. A few guys brought lunch. This kid did. 
But it, still, if we have them all sharing, it's still not going to feed everybody. Because most of them didn't. You know, he's, he's seeing the problem. He sees the statistics. You know, he sees the number. He does the math. And he's like, ah, no, it doesn't work. Right? And isn't that what we do? We look at situations and we do the math in our head and then we pray in desperation. Because you have the hope, first of all, first, before going to the Lord, you have the hope in yourself first. And that's my job here, to, to strip you of all hope in yourself. To strip the sinner of all and every hope in themselves. You're welcome. Um, and that is exactly what Jesus does. There is no hope to feed all these people. Now, as wonderful as this story is, this chapter of Scripture is not about this story. It's not about the provision of God, although it's definitely there. It's not about fish and bread, although it's definitely there. Let's move on. We'll see what this chapter is about. Verse 16, another miracle, or maybe, depending on how you look at it, miracles. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across to the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad, to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Now, just as the end of verse 21, uh, that may be seen as, seen as another miracle as well. It's immediate. They were three or four miles in, and then immediately they were at shore. Uh, but, of course, we are told here that Jesus walked on water. That's no small miracle. And it does show... Jesus' power over nature. We know, if you've ever been at sea, you know how powerful wind is and the, and the waves are. A storm, and you're in a small boat, it's a dangerous situation. You know how powerful this is. And Jesus has total power over it. In the other gospel, the other account of this miracle, we're told that he basically tells the wind to stop and, and, and the rain to stop and the storm ends right there. He has his sovereignty, extends over the powers of nature, too. No doubt they were frightened. And as wonderful as this story is, this account of this miracle is, the power of Jesus over nature, and being able to walk on water, that's not what this chapter is about. Jesus goes on to show them and to preach to them that He is the bread of life. That He is the one that just like Moses fed, that God fed the people manna in the desert those 40 years, He has the power to feed His people. He is actually greater than Moses because He Himself had the power to do all of this. He was the one in charge. He is the prophet that Moses prophesied about, and he's even greater than Moses. Jesus shows, to be fulfill, shows himself to be fulfilling what was promised all along. This is just another type, another shadow that was fulfilled in the life of Jesus, in the miracle of Jesus. Moses prophesied, and here the prophecy is being fulfilled, and he's showing himself to be even greater than Moses. These miracles, these two miracles, the feeding of the 20,000 and Jesus walking on water and stopping the storm, they serve as the support for his claims right here. Isn't that what we saw in, verse, in, in, in chapter 5? Jesus goes in, he heals a man, he performs a miracle, then he claims to be God, then he is rejected. The very same structure. Jesus Now chapter 6, he performs these miracles, now he's going to go on and claim to be the bread of life. Verse 35, chapter 6, go with me. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, 
And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now the physical bread that he fed all these people, they're just a sign. Did you notice that John does not use the word miracle? He uses the word sign when he talks about miracle. It's because he wants to emphasize that whenever Jesus does something supernatural, that is pointing. It's a sign. It's pointing to something greater. Jesus is doing something in the natural realm. Feeding people, regular food. But that points to a greater spiritual reality that He is the bread of life. He is the eternal bread of life. What in the world does that mean? That means that your soul has hungers. Your soul needs to be fed. When you are in sin, that soul needs or or wants or seeks, pursues food in in water in, in broken cisterns of sin. Just dirty mud. That's all you can feed yourself with. And Jesus talks about that. No one can come to me unless the Father grants them. They didn't like that. Your soul has a need, and that need is called God. Not just any old God that you you create in your mind like they did, the Messiah that would feed them and serve them and have no demands on them and that would overthrow Rome. No, 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 no. Not just any old God that you make up and cre- that you create. The God of the Bible. The one that created heaven and earth. The one that had sent His Son to give His body, to give His flesh, according to this chapter, for His people's eternal life. Verse 41. He'll say it again. The Jews were grumbling. Right? So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that, come, that came down from heaven. In the prologue to this book, chapter 1, he will say that the Word was God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 he says, The Word was made flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus has just said that once again. I am eternal food for your soul. I am the ultimate source of eternal life. I came came from heaven. I'm here standing in front of you. Let all of you come and live eternally. Verses 47 and 48. Jesus again says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Believes what? Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Verses 50 and 51. Jesus explains once again who He is. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat and not die. He who believes in me will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Just said it once again. Are we not going to die? Well, unless Jesus comes back, everybody's hearts are going to stop beating. He's talking spiritually. If you believe in Him, you will not experience the second death which is eternal separation from the loving presence of God. Definitely in His presence, but His wrathful, judging presence. That's the second death. But no problem if you eat of the bread of life that is being offered to you this morning. You don't have to worry about that. Verse 58. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Not like the manna that I gave them in the, ha- in, in, in the desert. They ate the manna, but they still died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. 
And he once again is in the midst of his people. And he's saying, come. I am the bread of life. If you find your faith being weakened this morning or Wednesday afternoon, remember, he is all that matters. Whatever happens, however your faith is being tested, he is the bread of life. He is the one that can satisfy you eternally no matter what's happening today. Cling to him. Come to him. Love him. Trust Him. Trust what He has said this morning to you. That He is the bread of life. And if you're with Him, you do not have to worry. Because even when things go south, He is good to get you through. And He will satisfy you eternally. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing. We're going to worship Him with our lips. Let it be true worship. Let it be worship coming from a longing soul, longing for his spiritual food. Let him nourish you this morning as we sing for his glory in your contentment. Father, I thank you that you are such a loving God. It is so kind of you to, first of all, first of all have, having sent his Son sent your Son, Father, to be our eternal food. Food that if we eat, we'll never, hung, we'll never be hungry again. We'll live forever. We are very aware that that cost you a great price. The life of your own Son. His precious blood. And we rejoice in whom He is. Our Redeemer who lives and sanctifies us. Let us trust that He is our eternal satisfaction. By Your Spirit, for the glory of His name that I pray. Amen. 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 Let's sing.